Good morning. Good morning. Give me a second to get situated here. I use too many devices. It gets in my way. It's a beautiful drive this morning. How many of you are excited for the first snow of the year? No? It's beautiful. Yeah, well, at least it wasn't frozen on the, on the road. <laughs> you know, two things mentioned this morning so far, and thankfulness and choosing, what you choose. This isn't really part of my message, but, you know, the, there are several sacrifices that were prescribed in the law, um, most of them obligatory, meaning you didn't have an option. But in Leviticus 7, I believe it is, it discusses the thank offerings, and they were totally optional. You could go your entire life long without giving a thank offering to God. It was your choice. Um, I think the reason for that is because compulsory thanks isn't really thankfulness, is it? If you're told you have to be thankful, you're not really thankful. It requires a choice. And there's something else that requires a choice, and I'm going to get into that in a second. For those following along, I'm primarily going to be reading out of Second Chronicles this morning, starting in chapter 17. But first, I want to look at a couple references just to sort of establish a bit of a baseline for what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, the first is Song of Solomon. It's a beautiful book. Uh, Song of Solomon is actually a love poem. Um, but at a deeper level, it's more than just that. It's actually a prophetic metaphor. Um, you see, it's, it's, it's written from the perspective of both a bride, a prospective, a prospective bride, and the bridegroom. So it's a picture of us as the bride and how we relate to Jesus, the bridegroom. And there's one passage of Song of Solomon that he brought me to months ago, and it's dominated my mind in the best possible way ever since. And it says this. It's, it's from the perspective... Per, from the perspective, sorry, goodness, words are hard, <laughs> of the bride. And it says in Sol Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Think about that. Like, say that out loud. His desire is for me. Personalize that. That's, he's talking about you here, the bridegroom, the king of kings, the creator of heaven and earth. His desire, his heartfelt desire is for you. And this is in the context of a love story. His love desire is for you personally. That's his primary desire. And by the way, this is a side note, but I think that's, that can explain the existence of immorality in the world. See, morality doesn't require a choice. God could program that. If his primary desire was that you be a moral people, don't, give me, no, don't mistake what I'm saying here. He cares about morality. He wouldn't have given a law if he didn't. But if his primary desire was that you be moral, he could just program that. Robotic morality is still moral. But love, like thankfulness, requires a choice. Otherwise, it's not truly love. And with the existence of a choice, that necessitates the option to choose wrong. 
because of his desires for you in the context of a love story, what he's desiring is that you desire him back. If he's offering his love, he wants that love reciprocated. He wants it in return. That's his ultimate desire. Uh, Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 22 when one of the teachers of the law or one of the experts in the law asks him, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus' response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Now what he's not saying here is, love God, love neighbor replaces the law. It's not what he said. What he says is, the most important command in the law is that you love God first and most. Secondary to that is loving your neighbor, and all of that is defined by the law. To properly love God and love your neighbor is defined by the law. The law guides your love and what that should look like in practice, but at the very top of the pile, it has to be loving God because his primary desire is for you and for your love. Everything has to flow from that. So love God first and most, allow that love to flow to your neighbor and let it all be defined by the law, what that love should look like. That's what he's saying here. His primary desire is for you and for your love. And my uncomfortable question for all of us is, is that good enough for us? Is his love and his love alone good enough? Before we get into to this, I want to pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you uh, for the beauty of your creation. We thank you for bringing everyone here safely. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and for your desire for us. I pray that you would rest your hand upon this place and every individual here. I pray that you would guide my words to be your words in spirit and in truth, and that you would just prepare all of our hearts to receive what you have for us today, that I speak it well, and that you, uh, that you use the words that you give to guide our hearts to you in the way that you want us to approach you. We thank you, we trust you, we give you all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, love God first, love God, love neighbor secondary to that, guided by the law. What does that look like when we get that right? What happens when we get that wrong? When love for neighbor creeps its way above love for God, what are the effects of that? I want to look at the life of a man named Jehoshaphat. He's one of my favorite figures in scripture. His life was fascinating. He was the son of a king named Asa, and Asa is a sermon for another day. His life is a bit tragic. But Jehoshaphat, in chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles, he's described like this. Starting in verse 3, it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because, that word is very important, because. Why was the Lord with him? Because Jehoshaphat followed the example of his father David's earlier days. That's a stunning statement. He's not just saying that Jehoshaphat was like David. He's saying that Jehoshaphat was like David on his best day. 
before David stumbled, before David sinned with Bathsheba, in David's earlier days when his faith was near perfect, that's what Jehoshaphat was like. That's what he's saying here. And it continues, He did not seek after the Baals or the false gods, but Jehoshaphat sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, meaning he obeyed his law, and did not act as Israel did. Israel had succumbed to very deep-seated spiritual rebellion at this point. It was not a secret. Israel was vile at this point in history. And it's saying he was nothing like that. So, because of all this, the Lord established the kingdom in Jehoshaphat's control. Just as a side note, this shows that obeying God's commandments is not impossible. We're told right here that Jehoshaphat did that. That's why the Lord was with him. I'm not saying he was perfect, but I'm saying that his heart, his heart was seeking after God and applying God's commands to his life. And he was doing so in a way that was well-pleasing to the Lord. That's what we're told here. And he was so zealous that starting in, in verse 7, it says that Jehoshaphat actually, uh, he prepared teachers and priests to go out into the nation of Judah, out into the cities, and to teach the law. He got them copies of the book of the law to teach others because he wanted to share his faith with everyone. He wanted everyone to have the same faith that he had in the Lord. He was leading everyone else to follow in the Lord, follow the Lord in the same way. And because of all that, in verse 12 we're told, so Jehoshaphat grew greater and greater. God was blessing him enormously. And then, come to chapter 18. And verse 1 says this, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Ahab, king of Israel, one of the most wicked kings, if not the most wicked king that ever lived, and his wickedness was not a secret. It was well known to, to Jehoshaphat. And this is the point where you come to, you're like, Jehoshaphat, what are you doing? Why? Why would you do this? He has no reason to. He's, he's growing greater and greater. The whole kingdom's in his control. He has peace. He has honor. He has riches. Why would he ally himself with Ahab? It continues, and it says that some years later after this, Jehoshaphat went to visit Ahab in Samaria. And while he's there celebrating, having a festival, which I'm sure was not moral at all, given who Ahab was, Ahab asks Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to war against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will be with you in the battle. Essentially, he's saying, you're my brother, Ahab. Of course, of course we'll go with you. Again, Ahab was wicked. He was a spiritual rebel. Jehoshaphat was righteous like David, and yet he's joining himself with Ahab. Why? And yet, Jehoshaphat does say this in verse 4. He says, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. His heart was still seeking after God. Seems that he's very confused during this period in his life. 
So Ahab assembles all these false prophets, 400 of them, and they're all prophesying good things. But Jehoshaphat says in verse 7, I'm sorry, in verse 6, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of him? So even now, Jehoshaphat has enough discernment to recognize these false prophets are liars. Like there's nothing here that's from the Spirit of the Lord. He can sense it. This is not God speaking. Is there not a true prophet that we can, that we can inquire of? And Ahab responds, uh, yeah, there's one guy, <laughs> but I can't stand him because he never says anything good about me, which is a glimpse into the heart of Ahab. He just wanted affirmation. He didn't want the truth. But Jehoshaphat insisted, well, let's ask him, see what he has to say. So Ahab calls an officer and he has a man named Micaiah brought before him. Now it says, it, it paints the scene here. It says, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. So they're sitting on thrones side by side, arrayed in their royal robes, and all these false prophets are putting on their show in front of them. And that's all it was, was a show. It was all fake. And then Micaiah walks in. And Ahab asked Micaiah, shall we go up against Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says, go up, succeed, for they'll be given into your hand. Now, I don't know why Micaiah says this at first, because it's not from the Lord. I don't know if Micaiah was being sarcastic. I don't know if this was a moment of weakness for Micaiah or based upon what we learn in a moment if Micaiah was um, speaking falsely. What I do know is that Ahab says this, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Ahab knew it wasn't from God. Again, that's a glimpse into Ahab's heart. He knew the truth. He knew what was right, and he was rebelling anyway. And remember, our focus is Jehoshaphat. He's sitting right there. He's listening to all of this. He's witnessing all of this. He's watching this exchange. He sees all of it. And he's a man after God's own heart. He's like David. So then Micaiah says this, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no masters. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And he continues in verse 18, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? The spirit said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, The Lord said, This is chilling. 
the Lord said, you are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. The deceiving spirit working through the false prophets was sent by God. Was sent by God. That's paradigm shifting. He continues, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. As chilling as that is, it's also very hopeful because not only did the Lord send a deceiving spirit in the mouth of his prophets, he warned him that he was doing so. <laughs> he sent Micaiah to tell him, this is what I just did. I allowed a deceiving spirit to speak through your prophets. This is your last chance. That's essentially what God is saying here. I'm talking to you now. This is your last chance. Repent. Repent right now. Up to this point in Ahab's life, remember Ahab served during the, during the time of the prophet Elijah. He had been warned repeatedly. Repeatedly. He bore witness to some incredible events like the showdown at Mount Carmel. Ahab knew. And so did Jehoshaphat. And then, after all of this, Ahab sends Micaiah off to prison. He says, only feed him bread and water until I come back safely. And Micaiah says, if you come back safely, the Lord hasn't spoken through me. Those were Micaiah's last words that we have recorded. By the way, side note, Micaiah is the hero in this account. He speaks knowing they won't hear him. In fact, I think it's his final words that are the most impactful. Because I envision Micaiah looking straight at Ahab when he gives this prophecy. Eyes boring right through him. But then, then I picture his eyes shifting to Jehoshaphat and softening when he says, Listen, all you people. Listen to me. This is my opinion, but I think he shifted to Jehoshaphat knowing he was the only one there with a heart that might hear. And he's pleading with him, listen to me. And then in verse 28 it says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. <laughs> what was Jehoshaphat thinking? What was he thinking? The only reason Micaiah was there was because Jehoshaphat requested it. It seemed like he was going to hear the word of the Lord. He asked, he asked to inquire of God, should we go or not? I recognize all these prophets are false, Jehoshaphat says, in essence. I recognize they're false prophets. Let's bring a true prophet here that we can hear what the Lord has to say. And Micaiah walk, walks in gives the word of the Lord, explains everything that he's seeing, and Jehoshaphat ignores all of it. Micaiah ends up in prison probably for the rest of his life because Jehoshaphat asked him to be there, and he didn't even hear him out. Why? Then we come to chapter 19. I'm not going to read it, but at the end of 
chapter 18 describes the battle, and it goes sideways, to say the least. It does not go well for Israel and Judah. Ahab's killed, as prophesied. Jehoshaphat should have been killed, but he cries out to God, and even in his rebellion, God hears his cry and delivers him safely back home to Jerusalem. He saves him. Had no reason to, other than love. But he saves him. Then after he comes home in chapter 19, it says, Then Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to the king Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Ouch. Ouch. And that tells us exactly what Jehoshaphat was thinking. Back up. The account of this period in Jehoshaphat's life has three phases to it. The first two we've already discussed. The first phase is Jehoshaphat's righteousness. Jehoshaphat's righteousness. During this period in Jehoshaphat's life, as recounted in chapter 17, Jehoshaphat was getting that paradigm that we discussed right. He was loving God first and most. God was his first and truest love, and he expressed that through his actions, and everything flowed from that love of God. But then the second phase, Jehoshaphat's folly, was when something shifted, and it got out of kilter when he joined Ahab. Why? Why? It's like the table of, of the Lord set up for Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem wasn't good enough for him. He wanted a throne of compromise sitting next to the wicked King Ahab. Why? I think we're told why. Jehoshaphat in his own words says, you're my brother, Ahab. I married into your family. And then the seer Jehu makes it very clear. You love those who hate me. It's the word of the Lord through Jehu. You love those who hate me. This is the uncomfortable truth here. It was love. It was love that led Jehoshaphat astray. Love is not always a good thing. We're taught that it's always good to love. It seems like a weird thing to say. I mean, Jehoshaphat shined the light to Ahab, right? He brought the light to Ahab. He showed compassion to Ahab, right? Jehoshaphat's love of Ahab encouraged Ahab. Jehoshaphat's love of Ahab reminded Ahab he wasn't alone. Jehoshaphat's love provided for Ahab's immediate need. And God condemned all of that. All of that. Because it was misplaced. It was misplaced. And as a side note, Jehoshaphat's army was involved in this too. 
he dragged a lot of people into this folly with him. But his army was not misled by Ahab's wickedness. Jehoshaphat's army was misled by Jehoshaphat's love. His misplaced and his misdirected love. Be careful who you follow. There's only one that we should. Our first and our truest love, our good shepherd, he's the one we should follow. I think this is an uncomfortable picture of the church. I think this picture in Jehoshaphat's life is a picture of the church in ways that we would probably be uncomfortable to admit. We start off really well loving God first, allowing all of our love to flow from that. And then at some point we get so focused on loving neighbor that we start to love God less. For example, when we allow the, the professing homosexual through our doors and we refuse to mention that sin in our sermons because we don't want to make them uncomfortable, we're loving them more than we love God. When we redefine His commandments because men tell us to, we're not loving God first and most. When we teach our children to engage in idolatry during holidays, we're not loving God first and most. We're engaging in Jehoshaphat's folly. I'm going to get very transparent. Recently, a ministry that I'm a part of hosted an event. It was a two-day conference. Um, the first day was sort of like a concert, and the second day involved speakers. Um, I played a major role in putting together the first day of the concert. I booked the, the talent, uh, developed a relationship with the talent, um, was sort of like the hospitality team, um, shared a message at the beginning, and that night was amazing. We got a performer uh, called ASAP Preach in, and some guys that he brought down, and it was incredible. It was so incredible. Uh, there was a point where one of these guys, they were singing, and then they prayed, and you could feel the shift in the atmosphere. You could feel the Spirit fall in that place. It was amazing. I, I've rarely felt something that intense in my life. And the night ended with like, what was it, Stephanie, like 11, 10 or 11 baptisms? Yeah. It was, it was awesome. It was. It, it felt so amazing. I, I walked out of that place so charged. But it was weird. It was like there was a, a shift in myself the second day. I felt so discouraged. I felt isolated and alone. And I don't know why. I don't know where it started. What I do know is I felt this overwhelming sense of being unappreciated. Um, like I said, I, I played a major role in putting that night together, and I, I systematically watched everybody praise everybody else involved. And this is pride. That's why I said I'm getting very transparent here. But I'm watching everyone else get praised. Oh, they did an amazing, that was an amazing, amazing message they shared. This person did such a great job. This person was awesome. And it seemed like I was getting skipped right over. I'm like, that hurts. 
That hurts. It's like I had this night of incredible victory on the first night, and then a day defined by total discouragement the second night. And that carried into the following day, which was Sunday during worship, and I'm sitting there and I'm just wrestling with this. Been wrestling with it all night, and I just can't shake it. Can't shake it. And I'm talking to God, and I'm praying to God, and I'm like, I'm tired of feeling set aside. I'm tired of feeling set aside by people. I'm tired of bending over backwards for people. This is just my conversation I'm having with him. I'm tired of bending over backwards and pouring myself out to empty and being shoved into a corner like I don't matter. I use that word. I'm tired of being set aside. And I heard him so clearly speaking to my heart. You're not being set aside. You're being set apart. And I stopped. I heard it, but I didn't receive it. I know what he was doing. He was shifting my focus and my understanding of what was happening. But I continued my grumbling. Yeah, I get it, God. Set apart. It still hurts, and I don't like it. He let me wallow in that for 30 solid minutes. 30 minutes he let me wallow in that, and then he spoke again very loudly, and it shook me to the core. He said, I'm setting you apart to myself, and you're not okay with that because are you ready for this? You're not okay with it because I'm not good enough for you. And I broke. That broke me. That's what Jehoshaphat did. That's what led Jehoshaphat astray. Jehoshaphat had everything. He had everything you could ever possibly want. He had riches. He had honor. He had a deep personal relationship with the Most High Living God. And it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. He had to seek more from that wicked kingdom to the north. Sitting at God's table wasn't enough. He had to have a throne next to Ahab, too. And in my heart, that's what I was doing. I was telling God, this table you've set for me isn't good enough. I want a throne over there where everybody's getting all the attention. That's what I want. And that's sin. That's sin. That's rebellion. That's putting God second. And we're not allowed to put him second. But that brings us to the the third phase in Jehoshaphat's life during this account. His restoration. Because after Jehu says this, this biting response to Jehoshaphat's folly, he also says, and this is the most high speaking through Jehu, remember, but there is good in you. There's good in you. Because you've set your heart to seek God. In his love, God chose to look past Jehoshaphat's folly and his rebellion and see goodness in his heart and touch that. Say, I'm going to make that grow. You're going to learn from this. You're going to rebound from this. It's going to be okay. Then we're told in verse 4, So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people, 
from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Purposed in his heart to bring the people back. Then he appoints judges and he says something really interesting. He's training them up, he's encouraging them, and he's telling them how they should fulfill their role. And he says this, consider what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. He's speaking from his personal experience here. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality. I think he's getting very personal with them at this point. And it's like he's saying, I made a terrible mistake. And I would give anything, anything, to take it back, but I can't. But you can learn from it. You can learn from it. You don't have to make my mistake. I think that's what he's saying here. Are we learning from it? I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Is that good enough for us? Will you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for every day. We thank you for every second. We thank you for all your goodness. Most of all, we thank you for your love that you choose to look upon us from your throne high and lifted up to bring yourself to our level and to write a love story with us. We should seek nothing more than that. That should be our heart's desire. When you say that your desire is for us, our response should be, our desire is for you, only you. If there's a piece of our heart that's not responding in that way, I pray, most gracious Heavenly Father, that you would purge it, that you would heal it. That like you said to Jehoshaphat, you would say, there's good in you, and I'm going to use that and I'm going to make it grow. Pray that you would rest your hand upon each and every one of us. You would fill us with your spirit, and you would guide us into a deeper relationship with you every second of every day. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise and all the thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.